Bhutasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami I want to dedicate this talk to my mother. Today is the 49th day since she passed. So we've been talking a lot about finding that natural resting place and what that means. And the theme, central theme of this retreat is the middle way. So I'm going to give some attention to what the Buddha said is the middle way, the noble eightfold path. And some of you may already have studied it and been practicing it for a long time. Others of you may not have so much familiarity with the components of the noble eightfold path. So my intention is to go through it, hopefully in a way that's fairly simple, but concrete and useful. And as I do, identify where the support um, in the Noble Eightfold Path and its cultivation and usage comes forward to help us find that natural resting place. So the middle way, this, this path, is the way to freedom. It's the way to happiness. It's the way to the end of suffering. So even if you don't really have a concept of Nibbana or um, um, a wish or a determination to enlightenment and full awakening, I think pretty much all of us want an end of suffering and an end of stress. So I have this um, faith or conviction that this is really applicable to each and every one of us. The first component of this, the first fold of this eight-fold collection is right view, samaditi. And it's first because to even start, to step on the path at all, we need to have some sense of the way things are. Otherwise, we don't even go there. So... The, com- the things that are included in this right view are really um, the whole no- Four Noble Truths. And in the beginning, this idea of, of suffering, which is what brings so many of us to the path, 
and how to find a way out of suffering. That's manifest right there. That's described right there. And we're given the key to how to work with it right there in the Four Noble Truths. What suffering and stress is, that it's present when it is present, to be with it, to recognize the cause of it, and how to remove that cause so we can experience the end of it. And then the way leading to the end of it, which we're discussing right here. It's a little circular, isn't it? And then also, part of right view or seeing the way things actually are is to start to realize the fruits of the actions we take. That there are results from the good things that we do and there are results from the unskillful things that we do and say and think. So a sense of, of kama or karma and when, as we cultivate that, as we develop skill with that, as we see more deeply into that, we begin to understand and be able to see beyond our actions to what the results are and what the potential results will be given the choices we make. And another main aspect of this first piece of right view are what's often called the three characteristics. Seeing really everything around us and everything we might call me or mine in terms of impermanence. And the suffering that comes from clinging to something impermanent and the fact that if it's impermanent and it causes suffering when we cling to it, it can't possibly be a self. It can't possibly be something that's me or mine. And this is a powerful practice as we look at everything in our life everything around us. This is a wisdom practice. This aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path falls in the wisdom category of the three categories, which will be clear as we go along. Now, wisdom is actually a foundation for this natural resting place. There's a place in the Middle East Discourses, it's um, Sutta number 140, I believe, called the um, Exposition on Elements. And in there, the Buddha says that there are four foundations for the arahant, the fully enlightened being. You know, think about what it might be like to not have greed, hatred, or delusion anymore and to not be clinging to anything in this world. 
And the Buddha said, but what that being who's realized to that level uses or has as a foundation, there are four things and one of them is wisdom. And I'll highlight the other three as we go along. They all are woven into the Noble Eightfold Path. And what that, what that suggests to us is that as we practice with this idea in mind of finding our natural resting place and experiencing those moments, as Ayasantachita has been saying to us, that are available to us in every experience, that one of the one of the foundations or one of the things we might notice when we're in that natural resting place is the presence of wisdom. It makes it possible. And it makes it reliable. Another aspect of of wisdom is the second piece of the Noble Eightfold Path, right intention or right resolve. And it's fairly simple, really. The Buddha came upon this before he was enlightened. You'll see this in another discourse, in the middle-length discourses, where he said there are two kinds of thought, two kinds of thoughts. One kind of thought would be about sensual desire, ill will, or cruelty. He put those thoughts into one category. And the other category of thoughts was renunciation or letting go, non-ill will and non-cruelty. And he said that when you have a thought that falls into that unwholesome category, he said, don't put up with that. Cast that out right away. Don't think about that. Turn to the opposites. And I like the Pali language, you know, it really gives us a sense of these qualities really much better than English, I think. And the way Pali is structured, a lot of times when you're taking the opposite of a word, you just put an A in front of it. So it's it's not really like non-cruelty turns into kindness. It's like non-cruelty, turn, I mean cruelty turns into non-cruelty. It's not like the opposite is the positive. It's just the absence. So what's the absence of cruelty? What's the absence of ill will? And we've been talking a lot about the absence of things because it's in our natural resting place, there's an absence of the five hindrances, as Ayasantachita was explaining to us. There's an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. And there's something very spacious about that. It's not just focused down on some word that identifies some positive quality for us. It's the whole space that is absent of these negative qualities. So those two, right view and right intention, are the wisdom part. And the, it, the Noble Eightfold Path, 
it's not as though you just start with one and you perfect that and then you go on to the next one. It's, it's interwoven and wisdom comes in the beginning and it comes in the middle and it comes in the end and it keeps increasing our ability to see clearly the way things actually are. And even moments of seeing clearer than we've ever seen before is a glimpse of Nibbana, is one of those moments of resting that will... I don't know if I can actually say always has this sense of joy, but it does often, if not always, has this joy that arises in the heart along with it. The third fold is right speech. Oh, one of those four foundations I told you about actually shows up in the right intention area because it's renunciation, the opposite of sensual desire. Renunciation is one of the things that the Arahant relies on or has as a foundation. Now, what's interesting about these foundations is that these are also the things we can cultivate and, and put our attention on as kind of a leaning in those directions to make these moments of the natural resting place more abundant in our life. So tending towards wisdom, tending towards renunciation. And right speech has the aspect of truthfulness, not lying. Truthfulness has so many levels, as Ayasantachita talked about that. And truthfulness, truth, is another one of those foundations of the Arahant. And I don't know, you might be able to recall times in your own experience where Things can be very confusing and then someone highlights, expresses the truth and everything goes still. Speaking the truth into a situation, particularly if it's that kind of ultimate truth of the way things are. It's very powerful. And it's one of the qualities that is part of that natural resting place, glimpse of Nibbana kind of experience. In addition to truthful speech, right speech involves not gossiping, not using harsh speech, and not using frivolous speech. (laughs) 
This is part of the the virtue or sila aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path. Once we have a little bit of right view, once we have a little bit of right intention, we're starting to sort the wholesome from the unwholesome, and we start to practice virtuous behavior, then we start to really lay a firm foundation for our growth and development in Dhamma, in peace. And right speech is followed by right action. Not taking the life of any living being intentionally. To not take anything that isn't freely offered to us. To not use sexual energy in any way that would be harmful to ourselves or another. Of course, we're seeing in here the, the five moral precepts or the five precepts or the first four of the five, the moral ones as well. And this, this foundation makes us trustworthy. And it, it leads to a kind of confidence in ourselves that allows us to hold our head up wherever we are, in whatever, whatever group or whatever place We never have to fear accusation or blame. And of course, we probably weren't always walking that kind of path. And I love the teachings of the Buddha and the way he set up. Um, He didn't. It comes from the Dhamma. It comes from the way things work as he pointed out, whether there's a Buddha in the world or not, the Dhamma is the Dhamma, and it's here. And part of the Dhamma is that when we change, our future changes, the decisions we make in this moment to do things differently changes our trajectory, changes what's coming in the future. And there's always a a path of redemption with the Dhamma no matter what has come before. That come is still there. We can't make it go. We can't like change the action of the past, but we can bring it into a different balance with the good actions of the present. And that is incredibly beautiful, I believe. You have examples in the, in the Pali canon, like, Mahamogalana having been Mara for 22 times and then he later becomes the chief disciple of the Buddha. Whether or not (laughs) um, that's too mystical. Um, There are many other examples too of the way people change and how that changes their life. And you can feel it in your own life when you change a behavior that was unskillful and you've learned and you start to do it differently and then years pass and you're doing it differently all that time and how it dilutes the negative action of the past. I must say that each time I'm pausing here, I think about my mother and I want to use her as an example 
in this discourse, this discussion, this um, presentation, or whatever we want to call it, this Dhamma talk, because it's this path that helped her go through that experience of dying gracefully, I guess I would say. And it helped me go through the experience of being with her. So just to give you a little bit of background, my mother came out here to California to live seven years ago so she could be near me. And I was the one who had to make sure she was okay. And a few years ago, we actually moved our vihara, the Karuna Buddhist vihara, to be three blocks from where she was living in a retirement community that she loved so that I could take care of her. And about six months ago or so, um, she took a very uh, significant um, decline in her health. And in January, late January, I moved in to stay with her because she couldn't be alone anymore. And she got a couple of diagnoses that made it clear that um, she was going to die, especially if she didn't want to do anything about them, and she knew right away she didn't want to do anything, not any more tests, not any more action, and we started hospice. And that three months that I was with her until her death was an incredibly profound practice. You know, the whole the whole period was it was wonderful to be able to take this path into that life experience and feel its support. So when we were, you know, looking when we look at this um, right speech, for example, or right action or right livelihood that we haven't gotten to yet. Not using any weapons or poisons or treachery or trickery or deceit in your work. My mother was very, um, very focused on honesty, not taking anything that isn't offered. She learned it from her mother. Meticulous. And when she was passing, when she was going through this period, she had no regrets. I want that. And when she got the diagnosis and she said, I'm not going to worry about it. And it was lovely to see that she just had really no unfinished business. No one she needed to talk to to straighten anything out. It's not that she didn't have unskillful action in her life or that she never had any problems, but she had spent quite a lot of time going to Thailand with me and being with great monks in the monasteries. I think she went nine times. And the main challenge in her life interpersonally was with some family members where there was a lot of pain in the relationship And she didn't actively look at that. Like we've been saying, you know, pain comes up, look. She didn't. But what she was doing was she was practicing metta a lot. 
And there came a point where she could be with those family members with complete loving kindness, as if none of that ever happened. Something changed without her even like trying to change it or looking at that particular material. So this is like, these, this is all part of this path. We practice and we don't even know what the outcome is going to be, but it purifies. And then you run into that person and you feel this compassion for them instead of ill will or resentment or hurt. And it's like, wow, where did that go? <laughs> it's great. So those are the, the, the right sort of virtue, the virtue, sila aspect, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Bedrock for our peace. And then we come to the samadhi section And I think most of us have heard many times samadhi translated as concentration, which I don't think is the best translation because it has this tendency to imply that we need to focus down and make our awareness small when actually it's maybe better thought of as a stability of mind, stability stillness. And um, the first component in the Noble Eightfold Path, as it is commonly, um, traditionally listed, is right effort. And there are four kinds of right effort. I particularly like the way it's described in a little book called um, The Word of the Buddha, And it's talked about as the effort to avoid. We're avoiding the arising of unwholesome mental states. Avoiding the arising. And of course, you have to understand what causes these things to arise in order to, you know, avoid that avoiding the arising of unwholesome mental states. And when they do arise, the effort to overcome them. Again, back to the Buddha saying, if those kinds of thoughts come up about you know, sensual desire, ill will, cruelty, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion in some of their many array of you know, possible faces that you put that aside. It's not like you're ignoring anything there, but you're not putting up with it. And then the effort to develop, to call forth wholesome mental states to know what it is that 
triggers those and brings them to life in the mind and the effort to maintain them when they're there. So if, you, if we do this right effort, we've automatically got a natural resting place coming up. We automatically find ourselves there, free from the hindrances, as Ayasantachita's book about earlier, free from the unwholesome states. And then we come to right mindfulness, which has a number of components. We look at the four foundations of mindfulness. And I'm not going to go through the first three because you heard a beautiful talk about them earlier today from Maya Santachita. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the fourth one. Mind objects. I actually rather not translate it. It's Dhamma, Dhammas. aspects of wisdom and investigation that are part of the Buddha's teaching. And I'm just, the ones that we see in the, the, the sutta on the four foundations of mindfulness, at least in the, in the Pali tradition, are the five hindrances, which we've also already covered, thanks to Aya Santachita. And the five aggregates, all those heaps, the five heaps that really collect all the different things we think of as, could think of as me or mine. Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, mental habits, and consciousness. And then the six sense spaces, both internal and external. Someone was asking earlier today, where do you put something like sound? It goes in here. It's like that's an external part of the six sense spaces. These are all things to reflect upon as we investigate to understand the true nature of reality. And the seven enlightenment factors, which I think you're going to hear about later in the week. Because again, there's these seven seven factors that as we develop along that sort of chain of qualities, we reach enlightenment. We reach and experience that natural resting place. I'm just going to name them. Mindfulness, investigation of mental states, energy, joy, tranquility, stability of mind, and equanimity. You want some of that? How beautiful the Buddhist teachings were, are. How beautiful the Dhamma is. It's so wonderful that the Buddha discovered this and could explain it to us. And then again, the Four Noble Truths. So 
that whole aspect, that fourth foundation of mindfulness that gives us all these methods and systems for investigating reality so that it becomes clear to us. And then the final component of the Noble Eightfold Path, Samadhi, stability of mind, concentration. So there were, I said, four of these foundational qualities that the Buddha said are the foundations that that the arahants rely upon, that you rely upon or you, you stand upon when you've let go of everything else. And the fourth one is peace, which is where this path leads. Wisdom. Renunciation, truth, and peace. So as you're experiencing and, and aware of and putting your attention on these experiences of rest in the mind, of luminosity of the mind, you might notice these foundational qualities being there. I want to talk about some examples. I'll come back a little bit more to my mother's passing. But first, maybe a few more sort of easy to relate to examples. Like if I ask people, if you scan through your day, when was your mind at rest? And We're cheating a little bit to do that here under these conditions, (laughs) perhaps. But think of it in your ordinary life. And and I think it's a really useful practice before you go to sleep at night. It's like, when today was my mind at rest? Did that happen? And sometimes people will say things like, well, when I was doing the dishes. You know how that is. You don't have to think of anything. You can just kind of be, really be present with what you're experiencing. And perhaps there are no defilements, no hindrances, and your mind is resting. Or sometimes people will talk about what they experience when they run or swim. How many of you have experienced something like that? Yeah, you know. Sometimes people, when they start picking up the mindfulness of breathing, and you start doing that at various times during your day, they'll you know, be walking and aware of each in-breath and each out-breath, and the mind will go still like that. There will be rest in the mind. 
And sometimes the world becomes vibrant. And you see things walking down the same stretch of road that you've never seen before. I asked this question of a group of people one night and this one woman said, oh, yes, today, I'll give you a little background on her. She's, she manages caregivers and she was a caregiver herself. And she said that day they were short staffed and she had to go in herself and take care of a paralyzed man. And she said while she was caregiving, her mind was at rest. And that was particularly kind of poignant for me because it was this came up shortly after my mom had passed away and I'd had those opportunities myself being with her those last months and weeks and days. And I just, I want to, you know, we want to look at those kind of, what do we think of normal experiences like running or doing the dishes, but we also want to look at these more powerful, profound experiences of our life, the deeper experiences of our life, the ones that we might think are the most challenging, like your mother dying, for instance. And to see how, like I said, that developing this path helps make that process easier. It made it easier for her and it made it easier for me. Because you know how this is when there's this decline happening, the person isn't eating very much, and then she got to the place where she couldn't walk with her walker anymore. She wasn't going to be using her walker anymore. And then we were using the wheelchair for one, and then she wasn't going to be using the wheelchair anymore, and she couldn't take a shower anymore, and she couldn't stand by the sink and brush her teeth anymore, and there came the day when she couldn't even suck out of the water bottle anymore, and on and on. And for me, I'd, I'd, it was, it's not a big apartment, so when I knew she wasn't going to be able to use this anymore, I passed it on to somebody who could, and each thing that went out of the apartment was a little bit of a kind of a finality. It was interesting. It was touching. And when feeling arises with the cultivation of this path, then you can just be with it. Be with that. And feel it and not suppress it, but not be awash in it. And then she got to the point where she couldn't speak anymore. And she couldn't open her eyes anymore. But she could still understand. She could still hear me and she could still, she still knew what I was saying. And I thought, okay, I'm going to chant in Polly. And it was very clear she didn't like it. (laughs) 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 
But after all that time in Thailand, what was that about? <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. It was for her. <laughs> so I stopped. Chanting the Metta Sutta in English was going, went much better. She loved truth, and, and in those last years, I would say, she blended Buddhism and Christianity in such a beautiful way. Never reject goodness wherever it appears. And then, you know, she deteriorated by not eating and, dr- and not drinking, and she lived for six, eight, six, eight days, six, seven days like that, not drinking. And her body became so thin and, and just the skin covering the bones. And, and I could sit there by her bed and contemplate her body. Using the contemplations from the first foundation of mindfulness. And I was taking care of this body in every possible way, so I knew this body really well by now. And it was this body of my mother that had given me so much. And it's so much like my own body. It was the most powerful experience I've had so far of being able to reflect on the nature of this body externally and my body internally and really understanding what that part of the of the instructions about mindfulness of the body. I mean she'd be laying there and, and there were there was four days where she was really serene, peaceful, I would say almost radiant. And I could sit there and I could scan with my mind through her body, knowing every part outside, inside, and each time say, this body, this body, my body is like this body. Heading for the same experience. And knowing that that was completely okay. Nothing to fear. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to see and be present with every step of this process. It will be a source of profound exploration in my meditation for a long time, I think. But even the opportunity to use that comes from cultivating the path beforehand. When I first started staying with her, I had to get up in the middle of the night whenever she got up, and you, you can imagine how tired you get because she would get up like an hour after I'd go to sleep or, and then an hour and a half after that. And, you know, there'd, there'd be this automatic response of the body and mind into irritation. And thank goodness for the path because I could see that irritation is just a feeling. It's just, it's just an automatic reaction when you don't sleep and you have to get up. 
And you can override it and say, look, I need to be there with her as she tries to get up to go to the bathroom. And you do it, and you can do it. And then you can recognize when you build up that ability to just see that as a feeling and, okay, there it is, and I'm not acting on that. I'm going to be patient and kind. And then pretty soon, it just doesn't have power over you anymore. Irritation comes up, and it's like, it's (laughs) no problem. And even then, even if there's a lot of fatigue, then pretty soon the irritation doesn't come up. This really works. And of course, you have enough to know, have to have enough wisdom to know that you have to give the body sleep at some point. So I did. But it's it's like this is this is pure gold. These practices. And after that, four days of of real stillness and serenity, she went into pain. And so there were those nights of calling hospice and trying to figure out which of the four or five medications I had that I should be giving her and how much and how often and all of that. And still, no need to panic or be distraught. I'm not trying to romanticize it. Because there's so much that goes on in a situation like that, and there's a lot of feeling. And I made some mistakes that I still have regret over a little bit. But then I have to remind myself, look, we do what we can. And regret isn't, it's not like regret from um, intentionally doing something harmful. It's just nothing ever goes smooth, really. Right? Especially in a situation as complicated as that. And to be able to show enough loving kindness and compassion for myself and for her that as hard as I would try, there's still that opportunity for guilt to arise, probably because I come out of a culture of guilt. <laughs> but to but to preempt that, it's another unwholesome mental state that we really don't deserve. And, and that we can not tolerate the way the Buddha said. Just don't, don't take that on. Remind ourselves of our good intentions and all the things that we do to try to give and forgive ourselves and others. And then the ragged breathing our ragged isn't quite right. Breath apnea is one of the, there were these signs, there are these signs of active dying. And, you know, she would breathe 10 breaths and then she would stop for 40 seconds and then breathe for 10 breaths and stop for 40 seconds. Great practice for mindfulness of breathing. Being with that knowing that this whole process has its own timing. And isn't that life? It has its own timing. We keep trying to force things. And, and really, all we need to, well, all I needed to do in that situation, at least, was respect that the timing would be the timing, and I just have to 
be open to being present with it. And with that idea in mind, there didn't, there wasn't any like wanting to push it or anticipate it with anxiety. At one point I realized that both she and I were waiting for this miracle of death. And that we see the, the miracle in birth, but we kind of miss the fact that death is a miracle too. That this, this consciousness, this karmic stream leaves this body and goes to its next place. What a miracle. There was one point before she couldn't talk anymore. She said, I, I just want to know when I can get up and get out of here. And then I think the next day she said, she, she put up her hand like this and she grabbed a little piece of skin. I was almost like, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. But she grabbed a little piece of skin and pinched it and she said, I want to get out of here. It was so clear. When she was in Thailand, one of the trips, we were staying at Ajahn Dun's monastery. So very accomplished monk, they say, an arahant. I don't have any doubts, actually, about that. But his primary practice is mindfulness of the body. And one morning, she came out of the hut, and she said to my son, the monk, and me, the laywoman, uh, at that time, is it okay to just kind of go through the parts of the body for a meditation? <laughs> She's just picking it up out of the atmosphere. <laughs> and, um, and then she said at one point that she said, the body's nothing. I saw my body thrown into the corner like a monk's robe. And that morning when she asked me if we had gotten the test results back and I told her what the diagnosis was, we talked about that experience. The body is nothing. You can throw it in the corner like the robe. after these days of watching and waiting and caring for and trying to know what would be best for her and trying to do it, then there came the time when her her breathing changed and it was regular. And at one point I thought I would just lie down on the little sofa next to her bed because I was tired and then for some reason I got up and I went over to her and then she went, and then once more and she was gone as I was holding her hand and I noticed that her hands were warmer than mine even after death
And I don't know for sure, but it felt to me like she was gone. There was no real need to wait around. She was really wanting out of there. (laughs) 49 days ago. And I want you to know that grief is not inevitable. That's no judgment about it. We feel what we feel, and that's okay. And feeling has been arising, and it's okay, and it passes away. And every situation is different. Don't beat yourself up for anything. Just learn and develop skill. And notice the resting place. Notice the profound moments of stillness and silence that you can contact in every situation in life. I wish you joy, happiness, peace in everything that you do. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.